Chapter Twenty of Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Elizabeth Clett, Houston, Texas, May 2008. Incidents in the Life of a Slave Girl, written by herself, by Harriet Jacobs, written under the pseudonym Linda Brent. Chapter Twenty: New Perils. The doctor, more exasperated than ever, again tried to revenge himself on my relatives. He arrested Uncle Philip on the charge of having aided my flight. He was carried before a court, and swore truly that he knew nothing of my intention of to escape, and that he had not seen me since I left my master's plantation. The doctor then demanded that he should give bail for five hundred dollars, that he would have nothing to do with me. Several gentlemen offered to be security for him. But Mr. Sands told him he had better go back to jail, and he would see that he came out without giving bail. The news of his arrest was carried to my grandmother, who conveyed it to Betty. In the kindness of her heart she again stowed me away under the floor, and as she walked back and forth in the performance of her culinary duties, she talked apparently to herself, but with the intention that I should hear what was going on. I hoped that my uncle's imprisonment would last but few days. Still I was anxious. I thought it likely Dr. Flint would do his utmost to taunt and insult him, and I was afraid my uncle might lose control of himself, and retort in some way that would be construed into a punishable offence. And I was well aware that in court his word would not be taken against any white man's. The search for me was renewed. Something had excited suspicions that I was in the vicinity. They searched the house I was in. I heard their steps and their voices. At night, when all were asleep, Betty came to release me from my place of confinement. The fright I had undergone, the constrained posture, and the dampness of the ground made me ill for several days. My uncle was soon after taken out of prison, but the movements of all my relatives and all of our friends were very closely watched. We all saw that I could not remain where I was much longer. I had already stayed longer than was intended, and I knew my presence must be a source of perpetual anxiety to my kind benefactress. During this time my friends had laid many plans for my escape, but the extreme vigilance of my persecutors made it impossible to carry them into effect. One morning I was much startled by hearing somebody trying to get into my room. Several keys were tried, but none fitted. I instantly conjectured it was one of the housemaids, and I concluded she must either have heard some noise in the room, or have noticed the entrance of Betty. When my friend came at her usual time I told her what had happened. "'I knows who it was,' said she. "'Tend upon it twas that Jenny. That nigger always got the devil in her.' I suggested that she might have seen or heard something that excited her curiosity. "'Tut, tut, child!' exclaimed Betty. She ain't seen nothin', nor heard nothin'. She only specks something, that's all. She wants to find out who have cut and make my gown. But she won't never know. That's certain. I'll get Mrs. to fix her." I reflected a moment, and said, "'Betty, I must leave here to-night.' "'Do as you think best, poor child,' she replied. "'I's mighty afraid that there nigger will pop on you some time.' She reported the incident to her mistress, and received orders to keep Jenny busy in the kitchen till she could see my Uncle Philip. He told her he would send a friend for me that very evening. She told him she hoped I was going to the north, for it was very dangerous for me to remain anywhere in the vicinity. Alas, it was not an easy thing for one in my situation to go to the north. 
in order to leave the coast quite clear for me, she went into the country to spend the day with her brother, and took Jenny with her. She was afraid to come and bid me good-bye, but she left a kind message with Betty. I heard her carriage roll from the door, and I never again saw her who had so generously befriended the poor, trembling fugitive. Though she was a slaveholder, to this day my heart blesses her. I had not the slightest idea where I was going. Betty brought me a suit of sailor's clothes, jacket, trousers, and tarpaulin hat. She gave me a small bundle, saying I might need it where I was going. In cheery tones she exclaimed, "'I'm so glad you was gwine to free parts. Don't forget old Betty. Perhaps I'll come long by and by.' I tried to tell her how grateful I felt for all her kindness. But she interrupted me. "'I don't want no tanks, honey. I's glad I could help you, and I hope to good Lord will open the path for you. I's gwine with you to the lower gate. Put your hands in your pockets and walk rickety like the sailors.' I performed to her satisfaction. At the gate I found Peter, a young colored man, waiting for me. I had known him for years. He had been an apprentice to my father, and had always borne a good character. I was not afraid to trust to him. Betty bade me a hurried good-bye, and we walked off. "'Take courage, Linda,' said my friend Peter. "'I've got a dagger, and no man shall take you from me unless he passes over my dead body.' It was a long time since I had taken a walk out of doors, and the fresh air revived me. It was also pleasant to hear a human voice speaking to me above a whisper. I passed several people whom I knew, but they did not recognize me in my disguise. I prayed internally that, for Peter's sake, as well as my own, nothing might occur to bring out his dagger. We walked on till we came to the wharf. My Aunt Nancy's husband was a seafaring man, and it had been deemed necessary to let him into our secret. He took me into his boat, rowed out to a vessel not far distant, and hoisted me on board. We three were the only occupants of the vessel. I now ventured to ask what they proposed to do with me. They said I was to remain on board till near dawn, and then they would hide me in Snaky Swamp, till my uncle Philip had prepared a place of concealment for me. If the vessel had been bound north it would have been of no avail to me, for it would certainly have been searched. About four o'clock we were again seated in the boat, and rowed three miles to the swamp. My fear of snakes had been increased by the venomous bite I had received, and I dreaded to enter this hiding-place. But I was in no situation to choose, and I gratefully accepted the best that my poor persecuted friends could do for me. Peter landed first, and with a large knife cut a path through bamboos and briars of all descriptions. He came back, took me in his arms, and carried me to a seat made among the bamboos. Before we reached it we were covered with hundreds of mosquitoes. In an hour's time they had so poisoned my flesh that I was a pitiful sight to behold. As the light increased, I saw snake after snake crawling round us. I had been accustomed to the sight of snakes all my life, but these were larger than any I had ever seen. To this day I shudder when I remember that morning. As evening approached, the number of snakes increased so much that we were continually obliged to thrash them with sticks to keep them from crawling over us. The bamboos were so high and so thick that it was impossible to see beyond a very short distance. Just before it became dark we procured a seat near to the entrance of the swamp, being fearful of losing our way back to the boat. It was not long before we heard the paddle of oars and the low whistle which had been agreed upon as a signal. We made haste to enter the boat, and were rowed back to the vessel. I passed a wretched night. For the heat of the swamp, the mosquitoes, and the constant terror of snakes had brought on a burning fever. I had just dropped asleep, 
when they came and told me it was time to go back to that horrid swamp. I could scarcely summon courage to rise. But even those large venomous snakes were less dreadful to my imagination than the white men in that community called civilized. This time Peter took a quantity of tobacco to burn to keep off the mosquitoes. It produced the desired effect on them, but gave me nausea and severe headache. At dark we returned to the vessel. I had been so sick during the day that Peter declared I should go home that night if the devil himself was on patrol. They told me a place of concealment had been provided for me at my grandmother's. I could not imagine how it was possible to hide me in her house, every nook and corner of which was known to the Flint family. They told me to wait and see. We were rowed ashore and went boldly through the streets to my grandmother's. I wore my sailor's clothes and had blackened my face with charcoal. I passed several people whom I knew. The father of my children came so near that I brushed against his arm, but he had no idea who it was. "'You must make the most of this walk,' said my friend Peter, "'for you may not have another very soon.' I thought his voice sounded sad. It was kind of him to conceal from me what a dismal hole was to be my home for a long, long time. End of chapter 20